it's funny, I was talking to, to Beth, my wife, for those of you who don't know yet, and uh, when I was going through the preparation for this message, I was saying, man, I can't wait to tell everyone this one. Like, I can't wait to talk about this, because this is, this is like mind-blowing stuff all over the place, so I'm glad you're here this morning. Thank you again for joining us online. We greatly appreciate you guys. You are part of our community, and uh, just... Uh, thankful that you're here. This is part two of a two part of a three-part series called Killing It. And if you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to go to our website, hammockstreetchurch.com, go to our YouTube channel, Hammock Street Church, find it on YouTube, and check it out. You'll be very glad that you did. It'll really help you as we go along. The series is about killing the thing that lives in us that has the potential to kill everything good in us and around us. The series is about addressing and eliminating our pride. Now remember, we're not talking about, I'll call it the good kind of pride, the pride we feel when we're proud of our children or we're proud of our work or we're proud of our accomplishments. We're not talking about the kind of pride that inspires others, that that, that inspires people to rise up, inspires people to do important things. You know, that's one of the issues with, with the English language. The English language can be a bit imprecise at times. The Greek language, contrary, is, is very precise all the time, but the, the English language is a little bit imprecise. So certain English words have many connotations, and that's why we get a little bit confused when we do these word studies. But we're talking about dealing with the pride we hold that becomes a prison. And that prison shuts us in. We become very inward focused and it shuts everybody else out, including God. We're talking about that kind of insidious pride. It just leaks into everything and leaves nothing but damage in its wake. That kind of pride puffs us up so much that there's no room for anybody else in our universe. That kind of pride makes us so big in each one of our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our work relationships. It makes us so big that there's no room. It crowds out everybody else. That kind of pride is the kind of pride that keeps us from admitting the things that we need to admit or initiating the things we need to initiate, apologies or reconciliation. It keeps us from listening to the things we need to listen to. Because that kind of pride makes us believe that we don't need each other, that we don't need anything, that we've already perfectly done and perfectly understood everything we need to do and everything we need to understand. It, it makes us feel like we've perfectly said the things that need to be said. It's that kind of pride that we cannot ignore. We can't let it have any control over us. We need to get rid of that kind of pride. We need to eliminate that kind of pride. We need to kill that kind of pride. So today, we're going to be talking about how that kind of pride affects a particular type of person, the kind of person that Andy Stanley likes to call a 3P person. So what's that? Well, let's pray, and then I'll tell you what that means. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for yet another opportunity to come together as your ecclesia, as your community, as your people, 
and to study your word and to understand you better. God, we thank you for this time together. We're thankful that we can gather together like this. And God, we thank you for the lessons we will learn. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what's a 3P person? A 3P person is a person with three distinct characteristics. A 3P person has power. A 3P person has a bit of prestige. And a 3P person has an excess of possessions. Let me break that down a little bit more. Now, by power, I mean that there are people in your life who just pay a little bit extra attention to you. If you're a parent, you're, 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 you have some power over your children, or at least, I mean, technically you do. People pay extra attention to you when you walk in the room. Maybe you're a boss. And I mean, I'm a boss, but I mean, you're the boss. Okay, maybe you're the boss, or maybe you own the business, or maybe you're an expert in something, or maybe you're a, a leader, a leader in your group, or a leader in your community, a leader more large scale. Maybe you're a leader. But whatever your title or your position, you've got a bit more influence than other people, and people are a little bit more cautious around you. If you have a spouse, your spouse is a power person. Can I get an amen? No, I'm kidding. So you know that, right? I mean, we're all, I hope if you're, you know, inside of a marriage that's working, there's a little bit of, okay, okay, um, there's a little power in the room and I'm, it's not me. So anyway, that's a power person. All right, moving on. Prestige. By prestige, I mean, you have a little something. You're the authority regarding something. Maybe you're the smartest person in the room. Not just you think you are, but maybe you really are the smartest person in the room. Maybe you're the richest or wealthiest person in the room. Maybe you're the most creative person in the room, or the most musically talented person in the room, or maybe the most innovative person in the room, or experienced person in the room. Maybe you've done something special with your life, or maybe you're connected to somebody important. You have a good friend, you have a relative, Whatever it is, you're just a little more weighty than the average person. That's prestige. And by possessions, what I mean is you've got resources. You've worked hard. You've earned what you have. Maybe, maybe you were born into a resourced family. I wish I was born into a resourced family, but I wasn't. Maybe you married into a resourced family. Whatever the origin of your resources, you have resources. And people give you deference because of it. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, when you tell a dumb joke, they laugh. Maybe they hang on your words. They're listening to every word you say. Maybe they give you the benefit of the doubt more often than not. Everybody knows you are well-resourced in that area. Everybody sees it. So if you're a 3P person, you have unique challenges when it comes to the issue of pride. Okay, so now maybe some of you are sitting there going, oh, great, but I'm not a 3P person. Well, if you deny you're a 3P person, it isn't necessarily because you're humble. Maybe it's because you don't know. Maybe it's dishonest. And if you deny that you're a 3P person, what happens is it sets you up to, to misuse the 3Ps. It sets you up to, to use those 3Ps unwisely. So the best thing you can do is acknowledge, yeah, I know, I'm a 3P person. I've got a little more power and a little more prestige and a little more resources or possessions than the average person. That means that you're poised 
to be negatively impacted by your pride, so you better be on the lookout. 3P people, if you're here today, today's message is for you. Now, if you're not a 3P person and you're sitting there going, nope, still not me, today's message isn't for me, if that's your thought, I'm going to ask you, just hang on a second. Don't check out yet, because I want you to see this. There are over 7.7 billion, with a B, people in the world. That is a lot of people. And think about it. The number we know as a million is a huge number. And even though we've gotten used to people saying the phrase millionaires and billionaires because it rhymes, they're kind of lumped together, those words don't go together. A billion is a thousand times larger than a million. Those words are wildly different. And the vast majority of those 7.7 billion people in the world, if they were to look at your life, if they were to look at my life, they would identify us as 3P people without a doubt. Now, I'm not going to linger here, and I would encourage any skeptics among you to fact check me, please. I got some of this information on justfacts.com, great site for statistical information like this. But the numbers show this, and you won't be able to see the chart, you have to take my word for it right now. The lowest 20% of wealth, U.S. households, the lowest, the poorest 20% among Americans consume more goods and services than the national averages for all people in the world's most affluent countries. Almost all. Look where we fall. The United States is there at the top. We consume the most. And our lowest poor consumes just less than the Netherlands, but more than the Croatians, and so on, even more than the English. In other words, if the US poor, the 20% at the bottom of that wealth scale in America, if they were a nation on their own, they would be one of the richest nations in the world. So congratulations. Whether you knew it or not, you are a 3P person. And because you're all 3P people, I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about giving. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that now. Anyway, did you know that half the world's population lives on less than $5.50 a day? How much is a burrito at Chipotle? It's like, like double that almost, right? The, the, the half of the world's population lives on less than $5.50 a day. If those people were to hear you say, oh, I don't have any power, they think you are out of your mind. And the same goes for your prestige, and the same goes for your possessions. So if you are an American, if you live here in America, you are a 3P person. You get the point, right? right. So as every one of us is a 3P person, this message is for all of us. And because this message is for all of us, we're all at risk for pride. We're all at risk for this kind of insidious pride to overcome our lives, to box us in. And when it boxes us in, it boxes God and others out. So, today, we're going to be looking at a story that comes from the Hebrew Bible. We know it as the Old Testament. And it's going to help each of us to be equipped to combat that insidious pride. Now, before we begin... I want you to know a little something about this story. Now, this story does come from the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, but it's not just a Bible story. It's not a parable, and it's not a story that is put together just to teach us a lesson. It's actually historical. It's verifiable history that happened to have been recorded in the Bible. So it's pretty heavy on black and white and verifiable facts, and we'll see that as we work our way through it. 
But as we do that, we're also going to discover a very powerful lesson that will be of great value to us as we work through conquering our pride. So keep that in mind, and let's dig in. Now, today's story takes place in ancient Babylon. That's an ancient kingdom located in the Middle East where modern-day Iraq is located. And it's about a king. You've heard this guy's name before, probably, if you've been around the church. It's about a king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. You can find this story in the Old Testament book of Daniel. It takes place in about 605, give or take, B.C. At that time, Israel was a divided kingdom. The northern part was known as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern part was known as the kingdom of Judah. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar's army marched into Jerusalem, which is in the southern part in the kingdom of Judah, and he conquered the kingdom of Judah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was regarded as Babylon's greatest king. And Nebuchadnezzar knew how to vanquish a nation. And during his conquest of Judah, one of the things he did was he captured some of the best and brightest young men and brought them back home to Babylon where he re-educated them and he sort of co-opted them to put their brains and put their resources to use for him and, and his people for his own benefit. He used them as, as advisors. He used them as palace guards. He, he really integrated them into his community. Now, if you grew up in church or you've been a part of a church community for a little while, you already know part of this story. You know the names of four of those young men that he did this with. One of their names was Daniel. The other three names were what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, sorry, grown-up picture. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anyway, some time passed after 605, and Daniel and the boys had just become accustomed to living in Babylon. They kind of forgot about their roots in a way, the way they lived, and they started to live in Babylon. And then one night, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And thinking this dream was important, he summons his wise men and his magicians, and he asks them to interpret the dream for him. But to make sure that they didn't try to bluff their way through it, he didn't describe the dream to them. He said, I had a dream. You tell me what it was about. He told them, and by the way, before I start putting Bible verses up here, I'm going to put a lot of scripture on the screen today. And, and I sort of apologize for that, but I don't also. Because we need to see all this stuff because it's important to the story, but again, the text is going to be a bit smaller than usual. I just want you to see it all in the same place. So here's Daniel chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is what I have firmly decided. Now, by the way, this is being written, it's in the book of Daniel, but it's being written by as, as if Nebuchadnezzar was talking. So you're going to see a lot of I words, and that's Nebuchadnezzar talking. This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, he's saying this to his wise men and his magicians, I will have you cut into pieces, and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, well, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. And they all went, right? You know that. But before the king put them to death, Daniel heard of the situation. He wasn't part of that group. He got wind of the situation. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, can I have a little bit more time? I'll interpret the dream for you. So the king grants Daniel's request. And verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. 
And when Daniel goes back to Nebuchadnezzar, he goes back to him to give him the interpretation. So we go to Daniel 2.46. Daniel gives him the interpretation, and King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate. He falls down on his face before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him, to Daniel. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made Daniel the ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all his wise men. Well, that's a pretty positive development, right? But sadly, it doesn't last. So, wow, the king looks like, okay, I'm following Daniel's God. I'm following the God of the universe now. Babylon belongs to the God of the universe. Awesome, but it doesn't last. So as I just referenced, a few years later, the king commissioned an idol to be made in his image. And he decreed that everyone had to bow down to the idol and worship the idol. And he said, whoever doesn't fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into what? the blazing furnace, the fiery furnace. That's the reference. Now, when we see this, we don't know where Daniel is at this moment. Is he hanging out? Did they give him a villa just to chill out? We don't know. But somebody outed Daniel's pals. They outed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they said, we're not doing that, king. We ain't bowing down to your idol. So what happened? They took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They threw them into the fiery furnace. Perhaps you've heard this story. You guys heard the story before? Yeah? But then God intervenes, and they're not consumed by the blaze. And if you remember the story, there was a fourth person who shows up in the fire, and we believe that is a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And again, impressed by their God, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes back and he goes, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Then Nebuchadnezzar says, Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's our god, be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save this way. Wow. So Nebuchadnezzar was, was in the boat, and then he was out of the boat, but he's not back in the boat. But another 25 years go by. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Here's what he says. Daniel 4.4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. By the way, do you see it? He's a 3P person, right? He's got a palace. He's got a home. He's contented. Everybody pays attention to him. He's prosperous, Right? Continuing, he says, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. What did he dream of? Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of a beautiful tree so large that everybody in the world could see it. But then he heard a voice, and that voice instructed him to cut the tree down, leaving only the stump. The tree was cut down to a stump, And the voice of the messenger, and remember, messenger can be interpreted as angel, announced this to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream, verse 17. The Most High, that's a reference to God, is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. So the king 
calls Daniel, tells Daniel his dream. Daniel shows him, well, Daniel shows he doesn't have a very good poker face here. So anyone ever tell you a story and it's kind of bad and you're like, don't make the face, don't make the face, just listen to the story, kind of nod. Well, Daniel was not good at that. So Daniel, in verse 19, he was greatly perplexed for a time. His thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Daniel, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Daniel said, "Mm, Nebuchadnezzar, if only this dream were about your enemies, but it's not. It's about you. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the tree. And this is the decree of the most high that is issued against you. Now, it gets a little bit weird here, but listen to this. This is kind of cool weird. So here's what Daniel interprets the dream to say. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, You, Nebuchadnezzar, king, will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You, King Nebuchadnezzar, will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven seven times will pass for you. So according to the dream, the king was about to be cast out from his kingdom, and he would have to live, literally live like, like an ox, like a male cow. And that would last for seven times. We don't know what seven times are. Is it seven minutes, seven days, seven weeks? Probably seven years. We don't know, but we do know it was a while. But then we get to the heart of the dream, so we keep going. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that, look at it, it's underlined, highlighted, the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave a stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. The messenger told King Nebuchadnezzar that the sole source of his authority was God, the God of the universe. And if he wanted to regain his normal life, the king needed to acknowledge that fact. He needed to acknowledge that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, It also says that, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't do this, you're going to be stuck in this weird ox-man situation until you recognize that even though you're a king, you are not the king. You are not the king of kings. And then we get to the command to leave the stump with its roots because in the dream, the stump is left, and that referred to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would be restored to him only when he recognized that even though he's a king, he isn't the king. Only when he recognizes that heaven rules. The passage concludes with Daniel begging King Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin, to repent of the sin of a poor attitude toward the treatment to those people who had no one to defend them. He said, repent of your treatment of the poor and oppressed. Now, remember what I said at the beginning. This isn't just a Bible story. This is a historical account that's recorded in the Bible. So now we continue on, and we find out it wasn't just a dream, because look what happens in verse 28. All of this actually happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. It really happened. And did the king heed Daniel's warning? Twelve months later, 
as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace. If there was the king walking around on his roof, they always walked on the roofs because it put them higher than everybody else. They could see their whole city under them. And he's kind of beating his chest and he says, is not this the great Babylon that I have built? Aren't I impressive? I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. So Nebuchadnezzar is walking around going, I am it, right? I'm the man. He was the most 3P person in the world. And as the most 3P person in the world, Nebuchadnezzar noted to himself just how wonderful he thought he was, right? Ain't I something? Just look at what I did with my own greatness and by my own power for my own glory. Wow. Now, how well do you think that went for King Nebuchadnezzar? Not well. Because... Now we go to Daniel 4.31. Even as the words were on Nebuchadnezzar's lips, a voice comes from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass. Again, we don't know exactly how long seven times is. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that now you're starting to see a pattern here, aren't you? The most highest sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Continuing, verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. What the heck. That's weird. Isn't that weird? That's weird, right? Do you know anybody like that? You know, it's a real thing. It's a real psychological condition known as boanthropy. Boanthropy causes, it's a form of psychosis that causes the sufferer to believe that he or she is a cow or an ox. And it causes them, because they believe they're a cow or an ox, to live like a cow or an ox. And that's what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. But also, as prophesied, it only lasted for a period of time, the seven, whatever that is. And at the end of the time, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, remember this is Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. So finally, it, it took him turning into a cow for him to realize it. But finally, Nebuchadnezzar, the three P person, got it. And here's what he said, Daniel chapter four, verse 34. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. Catch this. His kingdom, not my kingdom anymore, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. A few verses later, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Isn't that a cool story? That's a cool story, right? Nebuchadnezzar three times thinks he's all that. He's the king, and boom, the most 3P person of his time is finally humbled by the kingdom of heaven because heaven rules. But the story's not done. Forty more years go by. 
So isn't it interesting when we're going through something and we're like, oh gosh, you know, God, you can get me out of this and oh, I'm struggling. And, and then the next day we're like, God, why didn't you do anything for me? And what's happening? And, and then the next day, oh God, why are you making me wait? 40 more years, remember we just had 25 years. I mean, this is taking place over a long time. But 40 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar has died. And Babylon's influence over the world was beginning to diminish. And the Persian influence or the Iranian influence was beginning to rise. And it rose under a man by the name of Cyrus the Great. By this time, the Babylonian kingdom, as it was diminishing, was ruled by two men. It was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, a guy by the name of Belshazzar, that was his daughter's son, and a guy by the name of Nabonius, or Nabonidus, who was the daughter's husband. They they served as co-regents, so they both kind of ruled Babylon. Now, Belshazzar ruled the city, and Nabonidus was leading the army. Now, unbeknownst to Belshazzar, the guy who ruled the city, Nabonidus kept on getting beat by the Persians in battle. And eventually, Nabonidus surrendered to Cyrus the Great, the Iranian, and he proceeded to take his army and surround the city of Babylon. Now, Belshazzar, who was in charge of the entire nation, of Babylon, he didn't know what happened to Nabonidus. He didn't know he lost in battle. All he knew that all of a sudden, these Persians are surrounding the city. But it was interesting. Belshazzar's pride caused him to believe that he had nothing to worry about, caused him to believe that the city was impregnable and that the Persians would not be able to breach the city's walls. So in his arrogance, what does he do? He throws a rave. He throws a party. And he dedicates this party to the Babylonian god, Marduk. And he did so on the night that the city was completely surrounded and isolated from all help. So this is interesting. Under Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians began a practice of sort of co-opting the gods of all the nations and peoples that they had conquered. So whenever they conquered a nation, Nebuchadnezzar would take the idol that represented that nation's god, and he'd bring it to Babylon, and he'd put it into a place. He sort of started this god collection. Eventually, he'd accumulated a pretty good stash of idols. So at this party he threw, Belshazzar brings out the statue of Marduk, that's the Babylonian god, and he sets it in the middle of the banquet hall, and then he had people bring out all the other idol statues and set them up around Marduk, and they're to represent the conquered nations, so he puts them in the semicircle around Marduk to indicate that Marduk could protect them from any other nation. You getting the symbolism here? But there was an issue. Years before, when Nebuchadnezzar had gone into Jerusalem, he couldn't find an idol. There's no idol representing the Jewish people because the Jewish people don't worship an idol. That's why we don't worship idols. Jewish people, we worship an invisible God. So the Babylonians had to do something, so what did they do? They they stole a bunch of other stuff. They both stole some stuff from the temple that showed that they were the conquering nation and they conquered the Jewish God, so they... candelabras and gold plates and things like that. And so they took those stolen items out and they put them with the other idols surrounding Marduk. So when Belshazzar had his party to revel in the fact that he was a king and that the Persians would never take the city as far as he knew, he brought out those gold and silver goblets and things that had been stolen from the Jewish temple. And he began to use those at his party. And then right in the middle of the party, this is like, you make a Hollywood movie out of this. Maybe they have Right in the middle of the party, everybody hears a noise. Something like that. 
and they look up and they see the plaster falling off the walls. And as they look more closely, they see something that looks like a finger that was scratching something, letters into the wall. This is, you should read your Bibles. This is a really cool story. We pick up the story in Daniel 5. The king, Belshazzar, watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees started knocking. Belshazzar summons his wise men. And, they offer, and he offers him riches and powers. Hey, I'll give you anything you want. Just tell me what this writing means. Here's what he said, verse 7. Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold, clothed in purple, and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in Babylon. By the way, isn't that weirdly specific, the third highest ruler in Babylon? Why? Interesting. Belshazzar's number one. Nabonidus is number two. So third, third spot is open. So that's, that's what that is. But nobody could read it. And Belshazzar was terrified, freaking out. And then Belshazzar's wife, because wives always come to the assistance of their husbands and they always know stuff. And so she goes, hey, wait a minute. What about that guy, Daniel? He's still around. Now, by this time, Daniel's an older guy, but he'd been part of the Babylonian government since he was a teenager. So he's a fixture around there. So, so Daniel shows up to Belshazzar. Belshazzar offers him gold and riches and all this stuff for interpreting the writing. And Daniel looks up at the wall where all the writing is, and then he addresses Belshazzar, who's, by the way, just all arrogant, like he is, you know, he's the guy. But he was at that moment arrogant and terrified. And here's what Daniel says. This is so cool. He says, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. But I'll tell you what the writing means for you. This is such a good story. Here's what he says. He says, your majesty, the most high God gave to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Let me stop there real quick. This gets confusing. Nebuchadnezzar, I've been telling you, is his grandfather, not his father, right? That's just the way they use to describe the familial relationship, kind of along the lines of, you know, our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we think about our ancestors as we just call them our fathers. So that's why he says it that way. It's actually his grandfather. So given to your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had all this because God gave it to him. God gave your grandfather all the power he had. But this is Belshazzar now, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped. Oh, I'm sorry, go back. But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, Nebuchadnezzar was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until when? Until he acknowledged that, we've seen this before, the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. So Daniel says, that's how things Belshazzar went down for your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. But he says, but you, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, even though you knew the whole story. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Here's what he did wrong. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Okay, so in sum, 
even knowing about his famous grandfather and everything that he had in his pride and in his arrogance, Belshazzar, as a 3P person, tried to steal all of the glory of God for himself. And he paid the horrible price, as you're going to see in a minute. Belshazzar did exactly what his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar did, and he paid homage to idols that weren't worthy, that were not the God who holds in his hand, your life and all your ways. And because of that, Daniel said to Belshazzar, God has sent you a message, which I'm guessing caused Belshazzar to go. <gasps> and then Daniel says this, many, many tekel parson, which means, you guys don't speak Aramaic? Yeah, no one speaks Aramaic. Okay, here's what it means. He explains it for us. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, that's not the word I said. I said parson, right? Perez is a singular. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to your enemies, the Medes and the Persians. Many, Belshazzar, you might think that you're all that, but your time is up. You might be the king, but you're not the king of kings. Tackle and Belshazzar, it's time for you to be held to account. You might hold the people under you accountable, but somebody greater than you is going to hold you accountable. And now it's the moment. And Perez, oh, and Belshazzar, your influence, great as it might be, is only temporary. And your kingdom will be divided and given to your enemies, given to the Medes and the Persians. I'm going to say at that moment, Belshazzar realized that his attempts to leverage his 3P person position had not served him well. And how do I know that? Because of verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom. About a week before Belshazzar threw this big party, Cyrus the Great had maneuvered the Persian army so that as the Babylonians were partying, the Persians were slipping into the city. They were digging it under the walls. That night, Belshazzar was executed because the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and he sets over them anyone he wishes. So there is a lesson here for all of us, for us 3P people. Because even though we're not powerful royals, God has given each of us a rule over which, a realm over which to rule. No matter how large our realm is or how vast our realm is, and no matter how much control we believe we have in, for, and over it, it's not really ours. It doesn't really belong to us. We're merely temporary caretakers. We're merely stewards. Each of our realms belongs to the Most High God. And though we often lose sight of that fact, we're going to be accountable for the way that we care for it and the way that we tend to it. One day we're going to have to give an account for the way that we managed our prestige and our power and our possessions. And how can we know this to be true? Because the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Now we need to make sure we take this lesson to heart. Because no matter who we are or, or who we think we are, or people think we are, even as 3P people, when our pride in ourselves begins to rise up and contend for control over our lives, because we're starting to believe the things people say about us, believe our own press clippings, as they say, 
that are telling us who we are, telling us that we're great, telling us that we're all that and a bag of chips as they say. We need to look that pride square in the eye and knock it down. We need to always be working on killing it because none of it's actually ours. It's all just stewardship. It's all just temporary. The Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So we need to be grateful. And we need to not be arrogant. And you know what else that means? It means that when we see someone with less than us, someone who's less sophisticated, less educated, less intellectual, less, less resourced, and we begin to puff ourselves up and move toward lording over them the things that we think we have over them, we need to take that control back. We need, to, we need to remove that control from the pride that's trying to assert itself over us. We need to say to our pride, get out of here. We're just stewards. All that we think we have is temporary. And we're going to be held to account for how we handled all of it. The Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. See, that's how we 3P people need to manage and deal with our pride. And that's how we kill our pride. And that's how we make sure that our pride never owns us. And that's how we make sure that we use what God has placed into our hands temporarily to accomplish the things that God's asked us to accomplish without getting caught up in the things that we think we need to accomplish. When you do that, you know what else happens? It sets you up as a person that God can trust with more prestige and more power and more possessions. Everything in the heavens and on earth that belongs to God and it's given to us for just a short period of time and there's no cause for pride. So let's just kill it. When you give your life to Jesus by praying, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. And now I, I want to turn from those things. And I want to turn toward you. And I want to give you my heart and give you my life. I want to follow you forever. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. When you do that, you'll be on your way to killing that pride that lives in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us this story. We pray that it won't take handwriting on the wall for us to remember the things that we've learned today, that none of us can make the mistake of allowing what we've accomplished or we've been given or we've been loaned to ever take over our thoughts and emotions. We pray that we would never dream of treating someone disrespectfully because of something we have or something we know or someone or some place that has influenced us. We pray, God, that we would always remember this is all yours and that heaven rules. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.